This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is your friend Anirban and in this podcast we discuss and explore unfamiliar histories of familiar developments and issues and concerns around us. It's been a few months. We started in August and uh, we've just entered into November. That's winter in India. and with winter comes the vision and practice of vacations many in india and indeed in the whole world revel in winter vacations and of summer holidays talking of vacations the concept of summer holidays in india probably dates back many centuries but it acquired a special kind of value status and urgency since the 19th and early 20th century under the supervision of the colonial british state in that context the idea and the reality of hill stations or of hill towns as a place which restores the health and vigor of the plainsman has a special place in our imagination every year scores of our friends and colleagues visit the hill stations presumably as a means to reinvigorate their tired bodies and minds for a vacation and then come back and resume their activities with an enhanced and more vibrant state of mind how did the hill stations come into being like many other things in the subcontinent uh, they were developed by the british colonial state and its major european officials in course of the 19th century in fact uh, they had served as the capital of the british colonial state in india roughly since the mid 19th century uh, until around independence or so queenie pradhan professor queenie pradhan who teaches in uh, indraprastha university has written a wonderful book on this history of hill stations in the indian subcontinent she has studied four hill stations in great detail simla darjeeling uti and mount abu on four corners of india and each of them developed as a hill station and administrative center by the british colonial state how did the british colonial state envisage those processes those places and how did they change the character of those places i propose to talk about some aspects of this change in history of those places 
following the work of Dr. Pradhan. She, of course, studies a number of aspects of hill stations about their history, such as how the colonial state and its servants imagined the hill stations. How did the people there imagine those places, live in those places before the colonial state moved in? How did the colonial state acquire those places? How did they go about redesigning those places? How did this redesigning tended to reflect their grand imperial vision? And how finally those hill stations became the holiday homes of the plains people in our imagination in contemporary times. We will, of course, not be able to cover all of these grounds. But in this first episode, I propose to talk at some length about the way the British envisaged or imagined these hill stations. The British um, inscribed the Indian hill sites with their perceptions of mountains, aesthetics, and landscape. Practical utility and aesthetics combined in their imagination to reproduce a European landscape as the English tried to build a model of the English countryside and an urban metropolis in these hill stations. Thus, in the construction of the colonial hill stations, two apparently opposite viewpoints, the empirical and the aesthetic, were made to be complementary. Now, the colonial settlers in the tropics had to negotiate two worlds, their metropolitan home, and their real site of official activity as in India. They found that the hills uh, appeared to come or present a midpoint between the temperate metropolis and the tropical periphery. Therefore, in this process, they changed really the entire perceptions of these hills. How did they do that? A specific conception of time and place enabled many writers and officials to blur, make disappear the actual landscape of the Indian hills or visualize the Indian landscape as a European one. Here is an example. This is uh, Lady Emily Eden writing about the Jaco Hills of Simla. And here she writes, a sea of pinkish white clouds rolling over them and some of their purple heads peering through the light, the islands, the clouds drew up like the curtains. In messy fold every now and then, there were the valleys grown quite green, tinged with sunbeams and the want of shape for which the hills are to blame on common occasions was disguised by all the vapory dress. The colonizers' home images strongly imprinted the local landscape. Avery, for instance, who wrote in 1878, revives an image of mini England in the charming villas, 
the bungalows nestled in the most picturesque situations among the pretty and well-laid-out gardens, which, he says, and I quote, gives a most pleasing foretest of the pleasure in store, unquote. The readers of such stories or narratives, that is, the English readers, were meant to believe that the hills were home, devoid of Indian presence, in transposing an essentially European town onto this new territory, the colonial settlers had to bring a recognizable conjunction, a meeting point between the here and now-ness and a background or horizon to which it could be related. The urge for England was strong enough among the British and in the Indian hills they felt close to home. Here is another passage. This day's journey I shall always remember, for it reminded me of home, the days of my boyhood, my mother, and the happiest of varied recollection. I recognized a great number of trees and flowers common there, such as far the oak, the apricot, the pear, the cherry, together with wild roses, raspberries, strawberries, thistle dandelions, nettles, daisies, and many others. There were two an indescribable something in the breeze, which brought back a comparative similarity of feeling. It also reflect a strong sense of nostalgia and yearning for home. The cool, temperate climes of the hill stations drew them close together in a shared, familiar whiff of home-like ambience. But who were really writing and thinking about these descriptions? These were British officials who had been feeling tired and enervated by the Indian climate. Now, the point is for an increasingly jaded urban audience, the Indian landscape, in particular the mountains, came to be perceived as some kind of a romantic nostalgia. Industrialized England, with its steaming chimneys, unhygienic hutments, and monotonous similarity of assembly-like products, affected the sensibilities of the romantics. In the Indian hill landscape, with its diversity of vegetation and variety of hill people, many Europeans sought a land of, of Eden, of Adam and Eve, of fairies, elves, and wood nymphs. An Englishman um, who um, used only the initials NMT claimed to, to found such a romantic, idyllic state in the hills, and I quote, In these hills of India, you may find that lost paradise and regain some of the enchantment of that ancient, yet ever young world where the people are children and where you feel that the fours and elves and even a satyr or two may be around the next corner. Here the gods of nature still reign and are worshipped. Some English settlers were also influenced by the rustic countryside tradition in vogue in Europe of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. 
The form and nomenclature of the cottages conformed to the images of an English countryside. In um, this description, which follows to the assertion of a controlled personal vision, the writer involves the readers in ordering a scene known to Europeans. A writer with the pseudonym Civilian orders the feature of Utkaman's or Uti's landscape into that of English countryside. Dodobeta's round green hog's back look with a crescent fir wood running up one side seemed to the writer to belong to the Pentlands or the Ockels. The road from Kunur to Utkaman seemed like Cromdel. He delineated one end of Utkamund to be like Dunkled or the pass of Kilikranki, and the others where hunting is done to be like the breeds or the downs of the English coast. The settler colonists sought a specific countryfied landscape in the hills alongside metropolitan comforts and amusements, but minus the ugliness and disadvantages of the imperial city. In the European perception, um, crucial to this picturesque enterprise is the metaphor of an unimpeded excursion of the eye, thereby the power of the gaze. It consists in quickly scanning the landscape features, organizing it with serendipity, the objects, and into a preconceived structure and convention. A traveler, like a landscape painter, locates himself outside the actual foreground of hill surroundings and paints a scenario of freedom and bold prospects. Now, this new way of looking reorganized the hill landscape into the foreground, distance and background divided into the outside and inside views, institutionalizing rank and class consciousness. One of the major features of this vision was to erase altogether the history of how Indians or um, local inhabitants and their politics and society and culture operated before the British came in. Later, we'd love to talk at length about this Indian vision that existed. One of the most visible characteristics of the Indian vision was, of course, what may be called the divine or the Brahminical vision. Many of these hill towns had been pilgrimage sites. Most um, obviously, one can talk about Mount Abu and Dilwara Temple. It had been for a long time a Jain uh, pilgrimage center. In fact, one of the problems that uh, the British would face later and which they'd brush aside is over control of certain routes to the approach road to the Dilwara Temple at Mount Abu. Uh, but let's move to uh, the British vision that we've been discussing. They meant to transform this hill landscape into something else. 
descriptions of the hill stations by the early explorers um, express their hope of what it might become. The visions of the future were promoted both by the institutions of the state and individuals. For instance, Avery in 1878 conceived the prospects of the new land of Darjeeling in terms of its economic potential. And here is what he says. The time may come when the wildest dreams of my sanguine friend, Mr. Edgar, may be fulfilled. And we may see this line carrying cotton goods, metals and salts of Europe and the indigo, tobacco and the tea of India to be exchanged with the gold dust and wool of Tibet and the silk of China. Simultaneous with the expansion of European political order into the hills, capitalism was beginning to expand its capacity to reproduce itself on the wider geographical spaces of a colony. Now, how else was other hill stations envisioned? There would be a pastoral vision uh, that they would replace. They would think up an agrarian or plantation landscape too. The hills appeared to possess industrial and commercial possibilities. The English accounts of the 19th century combined scientific, geographical and economic descriptions. For instance, the British identified a military landscape too. They took note of the martial capabilities of some sections of the hill community. Colonel Todd, for instance, mentioned the convocations of the gods at Abu to regenerate the warrior castes of the Rajputs. The Limbus and Khamba Lepchas of the Darjeeling Hills were also seen displaying the quality of warriors. The Khamba Lepchas were certified as a fighting race. The Limbus and their successors, the Gurkhas, who dislodged the former, the Lepchas, with a lot of difficulty from their stronghold in Nepal, had already proved their fighting capabilities to the British. Hooker described the Gurkhas to be equally brave and cruel in battle. The hills also came to be perceived as a natural line of strategic defense. Major Archer in 1836 wrote, and I quote, the hills um, could be a bulwark to our possession in Hindustan. The hills are of infinite value, presenting a bold and natural line of defense, easily maintained as the event of Gurkha war proved. In Darjeeling, uh, Newal in 1880s mapped out to the tiniest detail the development of the reserve circles or landwares for safe evacuation from the Indian plains in case of any unrest. He was convinced that with a few additional reinforcements, Darjeeling would easily form a refuge for outlying settlers in times of peril. Now, the following passage suggests 
uh, a realignment of heel spaces as a line of strategic defense. Here is what uh, I quote. By converging roads on our frontier post number 17 from the Nepalese port of Elam, which is within 20 miles of Darjeeling, a hostile force might be, in the course of one long moonlit night, thrown across our communication with the plains via Karsiang, etc. In view of the importance of this position, I think that the garrison of Jalapahar, on which the barracks are situated, should be strengthened by a few pieces of heavy ordnance, etc., so as to enable a portion of the garrison to take the field, if necessary, and operate on the lines of least resistance leading into our territory. Now, there is also other stakeholders in trying to reimagine the hills of India. Uh, there were the Christian missionaries. There were points of conjunction between Christian missionaries and imperialists. Both um, tended to um, imagine images of discipline, order, peace, progress, and belief in the white man's burden to civilized and uh, ag culture, the Palladian landscape. Now, um, how did um, the the missionary looked at some of these. Here is a quote in Calcutta Review in 1857. And I quote, such a country we believe um, has been cast in our way for a far higher purpose than that of securing health or recreation of the Sikh and the wary. As a field of mission, Darjeeling territory should not be lost sight of by those who are interested in the diffusion of Christianity in the East, and especially on our northeastern frontiers. Then there were those who looked at uh, these hill stations and uh, the recreation and health potential or restoration potentials of some of these sites. The hill landscape was viewed as an abode of the Greek goddess Hygieia and a natural sanatorium. Here is another quote with regard to that from 1833 by Herbert. Um, it is not so much the mere temperance of a mountain station that renders it so delightful a retreat to the debilitated Europeans who for 20 years or more has suffered under the fervors of an Indian sun. This is a light, there is a lightness and buoyancy in the air, or rather in our spirits in mountain regions, that to him who has doled away years in apathetic indolence, inevitably induced by the climate of the plains, and particularly of Calcutta, feels like taking a new lease of life, or rather like the passing into the new and superior state of existence, instead of the listlessness in which we of the city of palaces pass our lives, 
apparently insensible even to extraordinary stimuli, the dweller in the mountains feels an energy and vigor, a power of exertion and a freshness of feeling, which is not found in the plains. Now this is um, a wonderful note to conclude this first episode of um, our exploration of the hill stations or how they came to be built. We looked at the various ways in which the British colonial officials, the missionaries and surveyors looked at the prospects of these hill territories. They were missing home, they were looking for rest. They were looking to escape uh, what they believed was terrible and enervating weather and climate of the plains. In the process, they imagined the hills as a virgin territory, as though it's a piece of nature. In the process, they tended to erase altogether the Indian or other local inhabitants and their histories and agency. They had been dreaming about uh, turning these hill stations into commercial entrepots, into military outposts and into a natural sanatorium for the unfit, the tired and the weary from the plates. Still later, they would transform these hill stations into temporary capitals. This is a wonderful note on which to conclude this first episode in our explorations of the history of hill stations in India. But do tell us what you think about this episode and our past episodes. What subject or concern would you like for us to talk about in future episodes. Till then, do subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website, GeoSavan, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Hubhopper. This is your friend Onirban signing off. Looking forward to the next episode of History Chatter, where we'll be talking about how these hill stations were transformed into temporary summer capitals of the British Empire in India.